Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for October has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Anthony Waller. He's a product manager at a large radiation oncology software company. How's it going, Anthony? I'm great. How are you? I'm 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 good. I'm good. Um, we've actually we've we've kind of corresponded for quite a while. You are uh, you're you're active on the five by five chat room. I am uh, a five by five fan in general. A jackal. A jackal. Um, yes. Yeah. No, I love the IRC experience. I love being in the chat room and interacting with the show hosts and the live recordings. That's all really fun. Yeah, and and so I mean, your day job is is software. What is your uh, what's your position and title? So I'm a product manager, and technically speaking, you know, a product manager would be the person who kind of oversees the uh, development of software, the uh, design of software, what the requirements are, what the ship date is, and what the resources are. Oftentimes, you know, in the real world, these things are kind of dictated to you. So you generally get to play with, you know, one variable, perhaps, like what features are going to make it in, and you don't get to hire new people, and you don't get to change the ship date. Or maybe you get to move the ship date back, but you don't get to change the features or requirements. So it's sort of this triangle of, you know, what, what are the things that are going to be present in the software? You know, what are the resources available to get it done? And when does it have to be done by? Would you say that your responsibilities responsibilities include dealing as much with people as with software and requirements? Absolutely. You know, it's it's a it's a very long process. And in the industry that we're in, all of our software is a regulated uh, FDA 510K cleared medical device. So there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of design development decisions, um, and it's a very structured and rigorous process, which has both its upsides and its downsides, as you can probably imagine. I can't imagine. I have uh, I have several friends who work in the medical industry, whether they are doctors or they are software developers or technicians. Um, and I have never heard anything great about the software that doctors have to use day to day. Is that a is that like a a common knowledge thing in the medical industry is there is is there a light side to that yeah so i think that really there's a lot of trade-offs that are made and it's i think it's probably true of i would say enterprise software in general and not just medical industry software though perhaps the medical industry software is you know even worse because it's got additional requirements that that deal with patient safety and, and health information and regulations about those things. But, you know, there's a, there's a huge trade-off between needs and quality. And what I mean by that is when you have different customers or different users or different people, and those people have their own different individual needs, you, can, you often have to trade off between, you know, am I going to make the best, the awesomest, the easiest piece of software that I can make, or am I going to meet all of these different little niche needs? And when you deal with enterprises or uh, medical field, uh, then you run into situations where those needs are really important. You know, sometimes they can even be life or death. 
Um, you know, if you can't bring in the CT scan from a certain CT scanner, there's really no use for your software. So you have to accommodate all of those edge cases. And so you spend your time chasing down these edge cases instead of really being able to make the best possible product. Um, and, you know, Apple's kind of almost on the other side of that spectrum. You know, they often say, I'm not going to focus on those edge cases, and people get frustrated by that, but it often leads to, you know, better software. Well, Apple gets to dictate the needs. Like, they don't, right. they don't focus on enterprise, and they basically get to tell people, this is what, this is what you need. Yeah. And, and it's a very different story in enterprise and, and medical software. What, uh, what, what are the main frustrations in trying to kind of meet those needs and develop something that is dead simple for, for practitioners to use? I think it's tough. Um, I think the main frustration is that in the development process, you get tied up trying to work on individual things, individual use cases, individual checkboxes. And when you kind of get bogged down in checkboxes, then that really limits you from being able to take a step back and say, you know, what's the overall process? What's the overall workflow? If somebody has never seen this thing before and just walks up and tries to use it, what are they going to think to themselves in their head? And that's how you end up with tons of cascading menus and options and um, drop downs and all those frustrating things that people are familiar with, you know, from banking software, from enterprise software, from medical software. So, okay. So when you're working on one of these projects and you are managing one of these projects, what makes it go bad? What are the factors? External requirements, I think, are, are always very difficult. And, you know, there's one of the struggles is an insulation of the people who are actually doing the programming from the people who are the users. Um, and the more layers there are, I think, in between those things, the more frustrating it is. So if you're writing a text editor, for example, and you use your text editor every day, that iteration is going to be super tight. And you're going to have you know, all your frustrations worked out really quickly because you use it all the time. But in our case, our programmers are probably not going to be using the software every day just because they're not physicians, they're not medical users. Um, and then the people buying it are not using the software every day. The people buying it are administrators. Um, and so there's this whole chain where you go from you know, a physician to an administrator to a salesperson to a product manager to uh, an engineer. And the more steps in that chain, I think, the, the more frustrating it can get to uh, the users because it's kind of like a game of telephone where by the time it gets to that last person, you've lost the original intent. That makes a ton of sense. Like in my little world, every developer is developing programs that they would use. And I think in your case, anyone who would actually be using that program probably wouldn't be working in software development. They would be doctors. Yeah. That's uh, that's, that's an interesting, it's, it's a conundrum really. Do you do a lot of user testing? I mean, is there, do you bring in like panels of, physicians who can, can just like ab test all of your 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 decisions and your choices we don't so physicians are really expensive um and doctors time is really valuable 
So what we end up doing, you know, as best as we can really, is we meet with a few physicians and we show them, you know, beta versions of the software and we talk to them and we have them use it and we try to get their feedback. Um, but there's a complication, which is the beta version of the software is not FDA cleared. So they can't use that clinically. So they can't sort of be immersed in it, which is what you'd really want somebody to do because you can't kind of find the rough edges until you live something. You know, if you buy a new pair of shoes and you try them out in the store, you know, they might feel good, but until you really break them in, you, you may not know that, you know, they're going to give you terrible blisters sure. when, you, when you walk on them for a while. Um, and and that, that breaking in process really can't happen for us until we clinically release it just because of um, regulations and, and the frameworks around trying to keep patients safe. Because beta software, obviously, when it's used to control you know, whether it's a linear accelerator or a CT scanner or another medical device, you know, there's hazards inherent in that process. It almost seems, though, like the the administrations and the companies involved with implementing the software would be willing to make the expenditure for doctors' times if they knew that the cost-benefit was going to be a reduction in bugs and, and an increase in usability across the board. Yeah, I think that's that's the case. You know, one of the struggles is that users don't always know what they want. So, you know, if you uh, one of the things that people do a lot in our software is they draw in 3D. And, you know, people are constantly asking for different ways of drawing in 3D and different ways of trying to get their drawings done faster. Um they have they spend a lot of time doing drawing and it's very frustrating sometimes. And so the engineers come up with all these, you know, more and more clever tools. But at the end of the day, sometimes, you know, it's difficult to match up those tools with the reality that the images of the patient may be noisy, they may be grainy, they may not be the best quality, and then those tools break down. And so if you get, you know, a couple patient images and the doctor tells you, geez, you know, this is what I have to draw, it's really frustrating, it takes me 30 minutes to draw, and then the computer, you develop some assistance to try to do that, and then it doesn't work with you know eighty other patient images. Um, it's it's tough. Um, and maybe what the doctor really wanted the whole time was not a you know a smarter drawing tool, but perhaps a better layout on the screen that would make it easier for them to see stuff. And so they wouldn't have to kind of go up and down um, inside the patient's body in order to see the scan in three D. So it's 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 really difficult to understand unless you have that iteration where you're coming out with a piece of software, people see it, they touch it, they try it, and then you you go back and you make changes. I, and I think the hard part is that the requirements tend to be kind of frozen, you know, months in advance in the enterprise software development process. And it's really, you know, that waterfall style of software development, that uh, waterfall methodology where you kind of have all these bullet points you have all these meetings and you iron out the bullet points and you come out with target dates and um, you know it, it's difficult to iterate because those things have been frozen over time. It, it sounds very frustrating. Your, your job sounds like a very big challenge. I'm very curious about 3D drawing though. What is it yeah. they're drawing and how are they currently doing it? Sure. So I work in radiation oncology and that's the process of treating cancers um, as well as some non-cancer uh, conditions using beams of radiation. And radiation 
mostly affects the body by breaking up water molecules into um, oxygen and hydroxyl groups. Um, there's some direct hits on uh, DNA, um, but most of the action is really kind of almost this, this effect of creating bleach inside your body where the radiation hits water because you're mostly water and then it breaks it up and then that hydroxyl group and the free radicals destroy the cells. Um, so there's uh, different types of radiation, but most of the radiation that's used is photons or x-rays. And so they take a linear accelerator and they uh, aim it at the patient and they try to hit the cancer but not hit other stuff. And you know, years and years ago, the way that they developed to do this was they would kind of draw where on the patient's outside of the body where they wanted to uh, hit the uh, tumor or the cancer. And then they would aim a linear accelerator there and hit it. But very quickly, they developed computer-controlled ways of doing this. And so modern radiation therapy is done with what's called inverse planning. So you draw everything that you don't want to hit in the body in 3D. And you draw it on a CT scan. And then you also draw the tumor. And then you draw where you think maybe there might be tumor, but you're not 100% sure. And you feed all of this stuff into the computer, um, all of these three-dimensional structures. Um, and sometimes they're also four-dimensional, 3D plus time. And you tell the computer, hey, I want to tr treat the tumor with this amount of radiation, but I want to avoid hitting the spinal cord. And here's you know, my maximum tolerance for hitting the spinal cord. I also want to avoid hitting the heart. Here's my maximum tolerance for the heart. And you give it all these different optimization criteria. And then the computer develops a radiation treatment plan where the linear accelerator is actually going to move around the patient and deliver radiation, sometimes while moving, um, as it moves around uh, in different patterns to try to hit the tumor in 3D from all the different possible angles and paint the tumor with dose while avoiding hitting all this other stuff. But of course, in order to get that stuff uh, that you don't want to hit, you have to draw it. So you're, you're going in on a CT scan, on sometimes an MRI scan, on a PET scan, and you're drawing all these different things so that the computer can know where the edges of them are in order to try to shape those beams of radiation that it's developing. That is awesome. I mean, the, uh, the subject matter is scary, but that technology, is, it sounds amazing. It's pretty cool stuff. You know, it's the forefront of uh, a lot of different technologies kind of intersecting. It's biology, it's medical physics, it's, you know, computer imaging. Um, and they kind of all come together in this space. And it's really a fascinating place to be. Wow. I, I'm, I'm impressed. That is uh, that's some, that's some fascinating stuff you're dealing with. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, the past? Sure, absolutely. You uh, you had it, it was leukemia, right? I did. I was diagnosed with T cell ALL on my sixteenth birthday. So, what was what was finding that out like for you? So, honestly, it was actually a big relief, and that's crazy, but. You know, I'd been really sick for a while and, you know, we'd gone in uh, to, you know, the pediatrician, we'd gone to the clinic um, and for a while they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And, you know, I, I was in my sophomore year of high school then and, you know, I seemed to have all these symptoms of tiredness, exhaustion, you know, inability to get stuff done. 
um, you know, difficulty, focusing, all this stuff. And, and what ended up happening was, uh, you know, I sort of started blaming myself for all of this. You know, I blame myself for being tired all the time. They thought I had mono, but I tested negative for that. And then, you know, I went to a, a summer camp actually where I was teaching uh, visual basic programming. Um, it was, you know, one of my first jobs kind of away from home. I was a resident counselor. Um, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker and I had, you know, nosebleeds constantly and, you know, trouble sleeping, but trouble being awake. And then when I finally, you know, came home actually for literally my 16th birthday, I went home, you know, my parents looked at me and, uh, you know, brought me to the emergency room. Uh, and in the ER, they, you know, did a test and they told my uh, mom that she had to sit down. I think it was my mother who was there with me. Um, and then they told me the diagnosis. And, um, you know, I, I was honestly a little bit relieved because suddenly I had something that I could put a finger on that was wrong with me. And it wasn't that I was, you know, letting people down by being tired all the time or, um, you know, failing in some way. There was a concrete reason. Yeah, that makes now, sense. Of course, it was, it was very scary at the same time. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a difficult thing to go through. One of the, one of the struggles and frustrations I think that cancer patients deal with, certainly that I dealt with, um, is, you know, the cancer doesn't really, in a lot of cases hurt. Um, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of pain, um, related to especially blood cancers. Um, you know, in some cases, if it's pushing against a nerve or something, you might have pain for solid tumors. But for leukemia, you know, that, that's not a side effect. But the, the chemotherapy uh, really does hurt. It's terrible. The side effects are, are brutal. And so you've got to go in uh, to the hospital kind of knowing that you're poisoning yourself. Um, and it's going to be really, really painful. And you're going to have these horrible side effects. Um, and it's really hard to kind of you know, get yourself to do that. Or if you take chemotherapy at home, you have to inject yourself with it or take pills and you have to be, you know, cognizant that you're taking this thing that's going to make you feel terrible and hurt so much. Um, but you have to do it because otherwise the cancer will come back um, or, you know, the cancer will persist. How, how long were you actively treated for this? So I was under, you know, I was, I was 16 when I was diagnosed. So they have pediatric protocols and, you know, leukemia is really the success story of uh, pediatric uh, clinical trial groups. Um, you know, if you look back 100 years, uh, I think everyone died. Um, but these days, I think the, the, the rates for uh, people who are five-year out remission are really high, maybe even up to 80%. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good wow. uh, outcome. When I was treated, I think it was a little bit lower, but the problem is that adults uh, don't do so well. And the reason is that the amount of chemotherapy and the types of chemotherapy that they give uh, really are, are designed for younger children whose bodies are more resilient. They bounce back better, and it's incredibly toxic. So the older you get, the less you can take these toxic drugs um, and the more the drugs have an effect on you. So I failed out of the protocol I was in. Um, because I had too much toxicity. So I had uh, pancreatitis um, and uh, some other really bad side effects. 
And I had these several times, and so they had to take me off the protocol. So I ended up being in treatment for about three and a half, um, almost four years. And normally I think that course of treatment is more like two and a half to three years. Uh, wow. So, okay. On the day that they told you good news, how, what, what was yeah. that like? What, what, how did that change life? Good news in, in being in remission. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So leukemia is interesting. So I went in, I got my diagnosis and then I don't remember anything for about a week. Um, and I, I had a really, really high white blood cell count. Um, so high in fact that, uh, they were worried that it was, uh, you know, going to be lethal. Um, because I'd been away at the summer camp and I hadn't, you know, nobody really noticed my symptoms and I had sort of been unwilling to go in to the doctor because I wanted to, I'd been to the doctor before and I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't sick, that I could do all this stuff. And so they had to, uh, actually scrub the cells out of my body by running all my blood through a machine. And I was kind of under for most of this. Um, I don't exactly remember how many days it took, but there's a, there's sort of a hole in my memory there. Um, and they had to do that because if they were to give me chemotherapy initially, uh, the chemotherapy will kill off almost all the leukemia cells, you know, pretty quick. Um, but the problem is once all those cells burst, it releases, uh, uh, you know, the inside of the cells into your body and it changes the pH balance. And so that can kind of dissolve you from the inside out if you burst too many cells at once. That doesn't sound so they like had to No. So they had to scrub them out of my body before they could actually start giving me the drugs. But once you start getting treatment, um, you're basically in remission immediately. Um, the question is, you know, are you going to be in remission forever? And with leukemia, it really only takes one cell um, to go back out of remission into cancer. So they give you this, this intensive course of chemotherapy constantly, and they give you radiation as well um, to make sure that there's not even one single cell left over that can, can divide. Um, because cancer cells are immortal. They, they don't die on their own. And for blood cancers, you know, they can spread all over your body. So it only takes one cell hiding out somewhere to, you know, kind of rebuild that entire population. God, that's horrifying. Are you, uh, are you currently, do you, do you receive regular treatments still? No, I don't. So I'm, uh, I'm cured. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm great. You know, there's still some kind of side effects. I have some gastrointestinal issues, some other things, um, and, you know, certainly emotional side effects. But uh, overall, um, you know, I would say that I'm a success case. Um, and I think I'm very lucky and I am very, uh, you know, thankful for that. I'm very glad you're with us. Do you, uh, how has this changed? How, how did, when you were 16, did anything yeah. change in your perspective, your like your overall outlook on the world around you when you got this Absolutely. News. Yeah, it changed everything. So, you know, one thing I discovered very quickly, and I was sort of a nerdy teenager. Um, you know, I think that probably a lot of people in the tech industry, you know, kind of have similar stories where they were in science club and math club, you know, not really um, – the most, you know, popular or outgoing kids. And, you know, one thing you discover if you're kind of in a hospital, you know, most of the time alone for months and months on end 
is whether you're really, you know, someone who needs other people to feel happy and, and fulfilled in life or whether you like being alone. And for me, I really discovered that I need to be social with other people. I need to uh, talk to people. I need to go out and, you know, have meals with other people. And I, I really changed my perspective on, you know, what I wanted to do and, and, and kind of pursue in life versus, you know, sort of these previous thoughts that, oh, well, my job is to, you know, kind of be successful in school and I'm not a social kid and I don't care about being popular to realize, oh, geez, you know, I get really depressed if I don't see other people. And I should really just put time into trying to understand, you know, how do I, you know, make more friends and how do I hang out with more people and, and do all that because it actually really affects my personal mental health. Wow. There are so many things about your life that I can't fathom. That being one of them, I, uh, I, I can spend weeks without seeing anybody and I get happier and happier as time goes on. That would be, yeah. that would to not have, I could probably do okay with extended hospital stays, but to not feel like that and have to spend that much time as a high schooler in the hospital, that, that sounds horrifying to me. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me in a way, that was sort of an epiphany that I had, you know, a realization about myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't come to those realizations until they're a little bit older um, and have kind of had different, you know, life experiences. And so I'm, you know, I would say that it really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, what do I need to do and what do I want to, um, how do I want to try to live my life to be happy and fulfilled? Um, and then realize that I need that social interaction. And, and, and because of your bad fortune, you had the good fortune of learning that early on and being able to pursue, I think, your, uh, your actual needs prior to other people even realizing what their needs were. Exactly. I think if there's a silver lining at all, it sounds like that was it. Yeah. All right. Well... I don't want to dwell too long on on something that you have moved on from. Did your uh did this experience affect where you focused your career? You know, I think it was coincidental that I ended up in radiation oncology, but you never really know and um I I think it's one of those things where you can almost force connections out of anything, sure. but um, it may be related. And certainly I, you know, I sympathize and understand, you know, what some of the patients go through having gone through radiation therapy myself. Sure. Um, well, let's talk about how you got to where you are. So uh, what did you study in college? So I studied economics, and then after that, I went into an internship in uh, a radiation oncology uh, medical physics group. Um, this was sort of during the period of the financial crisis, and you know it wasn't great for economics. And I know a lot of people who uh, you know had internships that were canceled and didn't uh, you know had job offers that were rescinded or people who went and worked for companies like Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns that then went out of business that fall or that spring. Um, and so 
you know, I had had a connection to uh, a medical physics group and I, um, you know, met the, met the head of the medical physics group and talked to him. I was like, you know, this is an interesting field. I want to try it. I know, you know, this is not something that I studied really, but give me a chance. And so I went in and they gave me a project, which was, uh, an MR spectroscopy based, uh, project. So MR spectroscopy is, uh, where you use a, an MRI magnet to, uh, image the different, uh, substances that are present in the brain. So much like, you know, gas spectroscopy would give you all these kind of different peaks about what substances are present. You can do the same thing with a magnet. Um, so you can figure out, you know, different metabolites and ratios and, and kind of get very interesting understandings of how different substances are flowing in the brain. And the thought was that this was a, a project for a whole summer, but, you know, I kind of put my back into it and uh, I thought it was really interesting and cool stuff. And I had some different tools at hand um, and did some programming in Python. And I finished the project in about two weeks. And so then uh, the guy who was the head of the medical physics group there was uh, impressed by that and was like, huh, you know, maybe this guy could help us out with some stuff. So from there, I ended up getting hired. Um, and I worked there for about five years, uh, and I uh, ended up moving to a startup that we spun off of some technology that we had developed within that medical physics group to, to uh, create software for some of these imaging purposes. And then this year, the company that... Wait, wait, wait. So at this startup, are you at this point a software developer, or are you moving into product management? So, you know, as startups work, initially I was doing a little bit of everything. And, you know, the startup actually had existed when I first took my job in the medical physics team. And I kind of did some consulting on the side for them Um, because, you know, I was interested in a job that had benefits, that had, you know, a 401k that was stable and startups are none of that stuff. But um, as time went on, the startup got bigger and bigger and, you know, there's a lot more opportunities um, in a startup for people to grow and, you know, uh, take different jobs versus an academic community where you need to have a master's or a PhD or, you know, have a lot of papers published. And so after, you know, the years in, in academia and medicine, I moved over into the startup side um, full time because it was, you know, a more interesting space um, and a better opportunity for personal growth. Um, so I started off doing, you know, a little bit of uh, programming and testing and QA and web stuff and, you know, all, all kinds of things. You know, I guess some people call that full stack, um, but, you know, we had a whole team of people. So it's not really, um, I don't think that's exactly the right term. All right. All right. So then, uh, then the startup manages to uh, expand or sell. Yeah. So our company was purchased by uh, the company I work for now. And, uh, you know, they brought everybody over. Um, so that was an interesting experience. So I, I experienced being in academia, I experienced being a startup, and then I experienced being ingested by a large corporation. Um, and then I've now experienced working at a large corporation. And how old are you? I'm 29. Wow. That's a, you, you've, you've gone through 
Like all the phases of a career before 30. All the phases Possibly. of a modern career anyway. I suppose you haven't gotten to the part where they give you the gold watch, but that doesn't happen much these days. Yeah. How do you I got a little plaque? Did you? Already? When I was uh yeah, when I worked at the university for 5 years, they give you a plaque. 5 years. Well, in the tech world, 5 years is a, long, a long time, time. to have a job. <laughs> Absolutely. That's funny. They should give you yearly, like five years should actually be the gold watch at this point. Yeah. One of the fascinating things that I picked up on was, you know, in, um, and I think you touched on this before, you know, we had some previous conversations, but in, in academia, you know, my job was pretty fun because I basically could always be a good guy and, you know, help people out and get stuff done and you know, I never really had to worry about the tension that, you know, sort of exists when you're, you know, in a large organization that, you know, has all their different requirements and different parts. And, you know, especially being part of a, a company in the medical field, uh, there's a lot of restrictions that have to happen. And, you know, I think that there's kind of a two different ways that you can go about things. You know, there's a, a light a light side and a, and a dark side of, of managing projects or, or products or, or even just interacting with other people. And, you know, sort of what it boils down to is what are your motivations? And, you know, something I've seen a lot is in these big companies, um, a lot of people have the opportunity to say no. And, you know, when you bring in meetings and you, and you get everybody together, you know, people really sometimes are just seemingly motivated by almost spite. To you know, if I if I can say no, I will say no. Yeah, um, and and I think some of that is justified. You know, there's the expression that you know big organizations you know kind of develop antibodies um, to um, you know problems they've had in the past. So it's like, hey, last time you know we tried to switch out uh, you know this technology for a new technology, everything fell apart around us. So this time we can't do that. Um, but I think the other side of that coin is, you know, those antibodies can kind of lead to allergies where, you know, you're afraid of trying new things and it, and it limits you and you have these sort of hyper reactions that are, you know, negative. And that's kind of, you know, I think losing track of what the goal is, you know, when you're, when you're part of a team and you're part of, you know, a group, you know, there's the ability to get things done. And then there's focusing on the technology, the requirements or, you know, aspects of the way that things are getting done, the implementation. I think that the uh, antibody allergen metaphor might be specific to your line of work, but sure. it's, <laughs> I love it. Like it makes so much sense. Yeah. And and the people who do that sometimes, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're evil necessarily, but they're getting caught up in almost the, you know, sometimes a, like a religious way, like, oh, well, we don't use that technology. You know, I don't, I don't do things that way because, you know, the last time we tried to do it, this thing went wrong or, um, you know, the last time we, we tried that approach, it, it ended in tears. Um, and so that's kind of people who get into these, these ways of thinking, um, and they end up impeding the success of a project because they're, they're not focusing on the end goal. So it's kind of like the, that's the dark side, I would say of, of the project management, you, um, you know, there's there's somebody I work with who we've kind of nicknamed uh, the Sith Lord because he's he's super knowledgeable. The guy is really smart. He knows everything. He he's been at the company for forever. He knows the in and outs of everything. 
But when he gets involved in something, it pretty much grinds to a halt because he's always able to come up with a reason why we can't do this or we can't do that and just sort of, you know, throw a wrench in the works because he's focusing on, you know, what we don't do versus, you know, trying to say, oh, well, we can all work together and I can put aside, you know, what happened last time and we'll try it again and try to try to come out with something positive. Do you think that a successful product management effort requires a little bit of light side and a little bit of dark side or is is the dark side just something to avoid entirely? I think that's a great question and you know it boils down to accomplishing things versus ending up in a mess. And you know that's definitely a struggle because you know you might know hey, you know if we half ass this, if if we cut corners here it's going to produce a ton of grief down the road. But at the same time, you know, you want to get stuff done. And at the end of the day, what really matters is, you know, did you accomplish what you were trying to accomplish? Is it safe to say that 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 reaction to something that's failed in the past, if you stubbornly say, we absolutely can't do that because it's failed before, that it's, it's the beginning of a failure? And if you say we need to take a different approach because that's failed before, then you are working it towards the light side? See, I don't know, because there's a, there's a balance between experience and knowledge there. Um, you know, knowing what works and knowing what doesn't, which I think is what everyone learns through their career, um, versus, uh, you know, sort of being foolhardy and charging down. But at the same time, you can get into these modes where people just lock things up and they never want to never want to move forwards if it's the wrong technology or the wrong um you know the wrong approach i guess if i if i had to choose a a way to try to discern you know i would ask myself the question are you ultimately caring about you know accomplishing the goal or are you ultimately caring about you know a sort of a quasi religious belief about a particular technology. So if you say, you know, I will never write anything in PHP because PHP is always wrong. Um, and any project that we do can never use PHP. Um, you know, that's definitely, I think, obviously the dark side. But if you said, hey, you know, most of our project is written in this and writing a new part of it in something else is probably going to slow things down. Um, but, you know, we can explore that. Let's just try to make sure that we, you know, don't go down a, a diverging road and get stuck somewhere. That might be, you know, a good balance. The other side of the token would be a new technology comes out and someone decides that you have to use it because it looks yeah. shiny and new. And they base entire projects on new untested technology. That can I would be definitely, uh, disastrous. I would, yeah. And I would definitely say that, you know, Really, anything in my view, anything where you choose a technology or you choose a, a methodology um, at the exclusion of anything else, at the exclusion perhaps of the success of the project, is is going down the wrong road. That's where you know you've you've kind of you know you've picked that that horse before you know where it's going to run um, or how fast it's going to run. I guess I'm mixing my metaphors here. Uh, <laughs> So, so the ultimate, the moral of this story is pick your technology based on the problem at hand and do it with a certain amount of knowledge and experience without letting it block 
Yeah. Or, or I guess you could just say be flexible, you know, care. That's, that's care, a smarter way to say it. Care about success, not don't get hung up on, on anything. Um, nice. And so many, so many people in IT get hung up, you know, it's something we see all the time with customers of our software. We see it with developers. We see it with other companies that we interact with. You know, people get hung up on standards. Um, you know, in our industry, there's a ton of really old standards that were developed in the 80s that don't always work right and that different people interpret different ways. And it, it really gets, you know, sort of like religious war sometimes um, between, you know, people who want to do things one way and want to do things another way. And that ends up just hurting our users or our customers or our partners because you're not focusing on the end goal of success. You're focusing on something else. Is stubbornness, in in your experience, is stubbornness the product of working in IT for too long or is it a prerequisite for working in IT? (laughs) I don't know if I can answer. So I'm (laughs) I'm extremely stubborn. It's something I struggle with all the time. Um, It might be. You know, I think that IT, uh, especially enterprise IT, you know, sort of suffers from the, I think, bad incentives. Um, You know, people start off on like phone support and then they get promoted to interact less and less with actual human beings. So like the, the top level IT manager, you know, never takes calls from users. The top level, you know, enterprise IT person really just makes plans and makes buying decisions. Uh, and, you know, it almost should be the opposite where, you know, I've, I've kind of thought for a long time that, you know, the restaurant industry is a great way to think about how, you know, maybe an ideal, ideal IT infrastructure would work. Where if you go in and sit down at a nice restaurant, uh, the manager comes over, you know, says, how are you doing tonight? There's a host that gets you seated. But then they have a very clear division between the waiters, um, the people who you're interacting with, um, and the people who are back of house, who are actually, you know, cooking the food. And you would never say, oh, well, you want to be a chef? So start off as a waiter and, you know, or a waitress and work your way up to, you know, being in the back, cooking, and then, you know, planning out the food. Um, because those are two different, completely different types of personalities. Very different. And, and, and two different incentives, really. And so, you, you know, IT, almost people say like, oh, well, I love this job if it wasn't for the users. Um, or... <laughs> You know, they, they crack jokes about their users. They hate them. You know, that's all, that's all wrong. It's all backwards. Um, you know, if you think about the people who are doing programming, it shouldn't have to be their job to, you know, make people happy um, or keep, you know, individual users, you know, on the uh, latest uh, or greatest uh, software. You know, they should, they should focus on, you know, putting out the best infrastructure they can, putting out the best software if they're developing something, or uh, you know, creating the best workflow for how the IT stuff is going to work in an organization. But and what, then the, sh- what, the, uh, what the customer interaction in most cases that I've experienced is supposed to do is give people an understanding of the user before they put them into providing products for the user. Yeah. And, and I, do, I think that like on paper it makes sense. But in my experience, when I started a company and they put me, it's the Zappos philosophy. Right. Where they put you on the floor and you 
learn through experience what customers want and what problems they face. And for me, for my personality, that's just not fun at all. It make it does not make me want to continue on from that point. And I yeah. think you're right that there are two very distinct personalities and you can't force a personality type into a job they are not cut out for. I, yeah, I agree completely. And I think you see that so much in it and it's, it's, it's an organization that almost hates itself. I mean, imagine, imagine if you had an IT department that worked the way the service industry does. So in, instead of having the back of house people have to talk to, you know, the users or the customers, imagine if you had an IT manager who their job every day was to get up and walk around and talk to every user, touch them and make them feel great and say, how is everything going? You know, what's wrong? Is your internet slow? You know, is your outlook not opening? Oh, well here, let me give you, you know, let, let me help you customize your desktop background, like something trivial, you know, but just to make people feel like they've got attention, like someone cares about them. Someone is listening to their problems. Well, and someone who speaks both languages, someone who can communicate yeah. what they hear from users like properly to the people who can fix it. Absolutely. I think most, that bridge most gets IT lost. Managers, most IT managers in my experience in medicine, you know, really don't like talking to the users. They they see that as like, oh, well, I did that when I first started. I've kind of put in my time there and now I now I just get to go to meetings with other IT managers and you know, we make sort of user hostile decisions. Like nobody's allowed to plug USB sticks in, or something. <laughs> you know, different different things like that. You what know? you're saying just all made sense to me. Like just the idea that you ultimately the the highest position should be someone who understands both sides, not like someone who got past one side and never has to deal with it again. It makes sense. Yeah. I like your philosophy. And I I don't know how you'd align the incentives, but I mean, there's different ways you could do it. Enterprise budgets, you could say. Like, what if you said you can't really tip I, you know, IT staff, but you could give them, you know, you could have some simple application that gave people stars or something, <laughs> and you know, the people who got you know more stars, um, you know, might get an easier track to promotion or something. I think there's a little bit of a zero sum game there, and it's difficult. But you know, when you call phone support, the metrics that people have are like, how short is the call? Right, right. right. It's not how ha- it's not how happy is the person. But if you're talking to a waiter, that waiter is not being judged on, you know, how many different tables did I get to talk to today? You know, how many, how many tables did I clear? How many tickets did I put in? It's, uh, you know, how happy is the customer? So um, you're saying IT people should be able to get tips? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of problems. <laughs> pro- there's problems with tips in America. But yeah, people like their experiences going out to eat more than they like their experiences calling IT. Right. Yeah, I think it'd be, it'd be no hard doubt. to disagree with that. Absolutely. All right. Should we do our top three picks? Abs- yeah, that's great. All right. I will let you start first pick. So my first pick is Amazon Web Services. And I, I looked through your picks. I don't think you've had this one before. Not as um, a general, not as a generality. No. So, you know, I'm a Mac user. I love using Macs, but I'm on Windows all the time as well. You know, we've got a lot of different customers on Windows, a lot of different versions of Windows. And I don't like having Windows installed on my Mac. I don't like having virtual machines. The overhead is just painful. And Amazon Web Services is an amazing service where you can just turn on a computer, 
um, with any version of Windows you want. You don't have to worry about licensing. You don't have to worry about you know paying Microsoft. It all just works. And you use the Windows computer until you're done with it, and then you shut it off. Um, it's fast. It's amazing. It's easy, and you pay you know anywhere between you know a couple cents an hour to a couple bucks an hour. And if you think about what a Windows license for Windows Server costs, you know that's like thousands of dollars right there. I just got my AWS bill down to thirty dollars a month. That's incredible. I mean, we're <laughs> we're you don't want to know what we're spending. Oh, I I know exactly how big it can get. I've I've seen AWS put to use in everything from you know personal S three accounts to large uh, scale uh, deployments, and yeah. I know there's a broad range. And for me personally, I've always spent 50 to 80 a month. And I finally yeah. got my storage needs and my, uh, my, my cloud machine needs down to 30 bucks. Yeah. The, just this month. I just got the bill yesterday. I'm all happy. But yeah, it's, no, I, I, it's I amazing. It. Yeah. They do amazing stuff. Little, little I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about Amazon. Yet I find myself there in general, like Amazon as a company. But the, sure. the the Amazon web services are by far the most stable cloud services that I've worked with. Oh, and if you do, if you have to do any Windows stuff, it's so much easier than dealing with virtual machines, in my opinion, on your computer. Um, you know, installing it, licensing it, like even Windows in different languages. You know, if you had to have a Japanese. If you have to have a Japanese copy of Windows Server, where are you going to get your hands on that, right? Yeah. I, I, I too, deleted all my virtual machines recently. Um, just it, it, It's too much to try to... Uh, the, the fragmentation among users is so... Uh, it's so diverse. Like yeah. there's... Like Windows 8... It, Windows... Well, no one uses 7. But like ME, XP, like I have to deal with all of these different OSs and all of these different versions of everything, I kind of gave up and I've just been using cloud services entirely. And like most of what I do is web testing. So I, uh, I use like the services that just kind of load your web page on every possible browser and then show you screenshots. Yeah. Harder to, but as har- a, as harder a f- to debug, a f- but a, f- a funny side note right now we're considering sending out, a letter to our users that we're going to discontinue support for XP with our next release. That's, think, so that's that's where we are with our software. I think that's entirely valid after Microsoft themselves have disowned it. And we're going to get so many complaints. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, IT, yeah, okay. Um, all right. Well, my first pick is an iPhone app. Probably available on iPad too, but I'm not sure. It's called Listen, and okay. it's a gesture-based music player. And there used to be more of these, and they kind of all staled and disappeared. Uh, and this is the first one I found in a while that I've liked. And it basically gives you full one and two finger gesture control over your music playback from your iTunes library. And uh, it's it's smart, like it's great for using in the car when without looking. It's also great when you can look at it. It has really slick animations, and if you press and hold, you get like a whole menu. And if you drag in any of three, four, five, six, any of eight directions, you can have different functions happen when you release your finger. And it's uh, 
I wish iTunes had more gesture control. This this is nice. I love gesture controls. I mean, well, I, isn't that kind of the point of iOS? Yeah, I mean, isn't I love them on my Mac. That there isn't more. I'm a I'm a mouse plus you know uh, magic trackpad person just because I love the gestures so much. Uh, yeah, I I I, g- I gave up on mice a long time ago. I've uh, depending on the machine I'm on, one or two magic trackpads. Two magic trackpads. I got wow. the idea from Justin Williams, and I gave it a shot. And yeah, having one on the left and one on the right, <laughs> and using things like Better Touch Tool that can assign different uh, events Gestures, to different motions yeah. on different trackpads, it's a blast. That sounds fantastic. I should try that out. It's magical. You feel like a wizard. All right. So what's your second pick? So my second pick, and this is a mouthful, is the Belkin Surge Plus 3 Outlet Mini Travel Swivel Charger Surge Protector. I use that one religiously. I'll send you a link. It sounds like you already know what it is. Yep. This thing is a lifesaver. So I travel a ton for work. Um, In the busy season, I'm I'm flying about once a week, sometimes twice a week, Um, two trips a week. So that's four flights. And, you know, you're in the airport, there's not very many power adapters, you're in a hotel, you know, there's only one uh, power jack next to the bed, or you're on an airplane and there's, there's two seats and there's only one power adapter between the two seats. What do you do? Well, this thing, you plug it in and it gives you three jacks out of one and two um, high output uh, 10 watt USB ports. So it'll charge two iPads um, and three laptops just from one port and it's really small and it swivels around and it fits in any bag. So it's just, it basically, there's this sort of game that people play at the airport where they're kind of glaring at each other. Like when are you going to be done, you know, charging your thing? Or if you're sitting next to somebody and you want to plug your laptop into that one charger outlet and the other guy kind of wants to plug his laptop in, you, you know, there's almost like a little bit of a cold war. Um, but this thing solves those problems. So Everyone loves it. And yeah, you can make friends by being like, hey, do you mind if I plug this in and we can all play? Exactly. And it's $19, which is not expensive, you know, shipped with uh, uh, Amazon Prime. It's probably cheaper if you buy it in a store or something. Maybe not. Who knows? But I love it. I have two of them. Um, I don't go anywhere without it. I, I wholeheartedly concur. That is a great pick. All right. My second pick is a little bit morbid. Um, my... I. I had to put my German Shepherd to sleep last week. And, I saw uh, that. I'm yeah. so sorry. Thank you. Um, so I went out looking. We're gonna we're having him cremated, and I went out looking for an urn, and I don't like the traditional pot-looking urn. Um, so I went, and I, I ended up at Etsy, and there's this uh, vendor called uh, My Inspirations in Wood, and they make these gorgeous wooden urns from various types of wood, like anything from Hawaiian trees to maple and uh, mahogany. And it's, they're, they're, they're gorgeous. They're fitting tributes. And most of them come with a little like paw print on the top and one bead of uh, like silicon glue. And you've got a sealed perfect memorial urn. So I'm hoping that nobody is currently in need of a product like this. But if you are, I, I highly recommend, I just got mine in the mail today and I can attest to the quality and craftsmanship of these. And they range from like $25 to maybe 
75 at their, their I gorgeous. just uh, I just pulled up the website and these things are, are beautiful I yeah, mean the really con- contrasting wood that they use it looks like they have two or three colors of wood I mean that's incredible yeah and they like I said they're they're really well made and when you buy one and, the, and that's the thing about Etsy that I love is the the vendor can contact you and the vendor immediately sent me a note saying I'm really sorry about the loss of your pet and you know cuz obviously if someone's buying one of her products they're dealing with the loss of a pet but she was uh conversational and it was uh it, if I ever go shopping for a coffin I would like to deal with someone who will respect what I'm going through at that time and I don't know if you can order coffin coffins from Amazon. I've never looked, but this was way better than buying an urn from a large, uh, like Amazon style store. Yeah, definitely that personal, um, you know, attention and, and quality. Yeah. yeah. All right. So moving on. So my third pick is another, uh, travel device. So this is the, uh, Edimax N150 wireless uh, router and hotspot. So if you've ever used an Apple USB Ethernet uh, dongle, you know, with a MacBook Air or a new Retina MacBook Pro, it basically looks like one of those. So it's got an Ethernet jack on one side, and it's got a USB plug on the other side, and that's how big it is. It's tiny. And what this thing does is it is a wireless router um, and it will, it has its own little web server. So if you go to a hotel, um, or another place, you can either plug it into your laptop for power, or you can plug it into any USB charger. So Such you can plug it in. Belkin. Exactly. You can <laughs> plug it into the Belkin and it will either take a, a, a ethernet connection from a hotel and make your own little Wi-Fi network. Some people use airport express for that. This is much smaller and much easier. Or, this is the amazing thing, it'll join the hotel Wi-Fi network, the captive Wi-Fi network, and rebroadcast it as its own network for you so that you don't have to register multiple devices. Many hotels these days charge you for multiple devices. And with this, you just plug it in, it joins to the Wi-Fi, you join it from your laptop, your iPad, your iPhone, all your different devices. I actually have a work laptop, a personal laptop, like four different devices, and this thing saves me a ton of money and a ton of hassle. Um, and it's nice. so nice and so easy. And it's like $20. I like that idea. Uh, does it have any uh, security? I mean, do you get like any kind of VPN out of it? or? Um, it doesn't, as far as I'm aware, do a VPN. Um, there may be a way to do that. I haven't tried that. What I like about this one, and I researched these before I bought them, is this one, you can set all your own security, password, uh, encryption for the Wi-Fi. A lot of these kind of devices have like preset passwords written on them or default passwords that are not very good. And this thing is really customizable and really easy. And, and, you know, I've never had a problem with it. It just works perfectly. Nice. All right. The antenna is not that big, but, uh, you know. Big enough for a hotel room? Right, it's perfect, yeah, for one room. Awesome. Will it reach the bathroom? It will. Okay. Um, I also use it on airplanes sometimes, and so it definitely works within an airplane as well. Nice. All right. 
Well, my last pick is actually a travel device too. Um, I just picked up a Power Ad Pilot S, and it is uh, I think it's twelve hundred milliamp, uh, twelve thousand milliamp dual USB portable charger, and it has it has two ports and um, one one is a higher. Uh, what, I don't even remember how the specifications work because I'm not good at that. Two point one amp and a one amp port, and this thing. Like I can, I can charge it up in about two and a half hours and it will charge my iPhone eight times before it gets down to 15% capacity. And it has an led readout to show you exactly how much juice it has left. I'm, I'm really, really happy with this thing for like 25 bucks. It's great. That's incredible. And you said it has two USB ports. Yeah. So you can do an iPad and an iPhone at the same time. Two iPads would be a stretch, but two iPhones, no problem. If you're carrying around two iPads, you may have a, <laughs> a bigger problem. <laughs> this is probably true. I guess if you really can't decide between an iPad Air and an iPad Mini, and you just carry them both. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are people. Anyway, so what's your uh, what's your Twitter handle? So I'm AF Waller on Twitter. Um, a F W A L L E R. Um, and then I also have a blog that I sort of rarely update, which is out of confusion.com. All right. That's in the show notes now. Um, anywhere else you want to be found? I'm often in the five by five chat room as AF Waller on five by five. And I occasionally still read app.net <laughs> again, AF Waller. I, yeah, I, I, I check app.net like once a week and I just renewed my subscription because I still love the idea. I had to cancel my subscription because I have too many subscriptions, but I still have an account. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for being here, Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's great talking to you. Yeah. It was good to hear your story. Um, And that is episode, I don't even know, 121. Wow. Um, episode 121 uh, with Anthony Waller and uh, I'm Brett Terpstra I'm at TT Scoff everywhere and you can find me at brettterpstra.com or or I think thanks to Anthony isn't it uh, T-E-R-P-S-T-R no T-R-P-S-T-R-A dot net are you at the dot com no, I don't know terpstra.com terpstra.com with no E I, uh, I've redirected that to Brett Terpstra with three T's. Right. And then I grabbed the dot net cause I thought it was such a good idea. Yeah. Thank I you have for a that. bit of, a bit of a domain name problem of about, uh, the only I think, I think I have about 80, eight zero domain names. That is a lot. It's a problematic. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening. 